This is Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture. I'm Amy Brown. One of the things we're going to be doing on Maine Currents this year is taking a peek behind the scenes at some of WERU's public affairs shows, what they cover, how they're produced, the experience and background of the hosts, how you can send in questions, or in some cases even get involved. We're starting today with the Democracy Forum, which began as an election season special before becoming a monthly program year-round. Ann Luther hosts, but there's a whole team behind her, and some of them joined us when we spoke in late March. Ann Luther, I'm a longtime member of the League of Women Voters, a volunteer. I serve on the state board as well as um, I'm active in my local chapter. I've been doing the Democracy Forum with WERU since 2004, which sounds like such a long time, but it's been a great run, and I just love the work. Judy Lyles, I'm a member of the League of Women Voters Down East, and I joined because my values really align very much with the leagues. You know, you really cannot have a well-functioning democracy without people who vote and people who are well-informed voters. And the league champions both of those, and there are so many ways to contribute, and that's why I'm part of the league. Uh, my name is Will Hayward, and I am the Advocacy Program Coordinator for the State League uh, for the League of Women Voters of Maine. And I got into this work because Maine is such a leader in so many ways um, for democracy. Um, you know, of course, we have ranked choice voting and clean elections and, you know, some things that are really models for the country. And it's so it's just really exciting to work in the space where we can continue making these things better, continue to keep Maine a leader um, in, you know, really setting an example for our democracy. And I just love the work. All right. We're going to talk about how, how these behind the scene pieces tie in with the part that our listeners are familiar with, the Democracy Forum program that airs on WERU in this time slot, 4 to 5 p.m. on the third Fridays of every month. But let's start with the program itself. And this is a clip we're going to play right off to start with, just a very brief outtake from one of your recent programs. Can you set it up for us? We had done a show in February about... Um, why small states rule the federal government, why small states have di- disproportionate control in the Senate, in the, through the Senate, in the Electoral College, between the two of them in the Supreme Court. And we wanted to follow up uh, with a topic about if small states have all that power, why do we feel so much anger coming from some of these small states? And is this rural resentment or what is this? So we invited a couple of experts, Amy Freed, who is from Maine, um, came on. She is the John Mitchell Nickerson Professor of Political Science at the University of Maine, and she recently wrote the book At War with Government, How Conservatives Weaponized Distrust from Goldwater to Trump. So she came on, and then we also invited uh, Michael Podhorzer, who uh, is the chairman of the board at the Analyst Institute and also um, assistant to the president for strategic research at the AFL-CIO. He's done a lot of work on why I think from his perspective, why particularly Democrats are not succeeding in rural America or to what extent they are. And he's really an expert on, um, you know, attitudes, trends and um, political motivation. So the two of them had this great conversation. So, Mike, what in your mind is the source of the grievance in, in resentment politics? Why do people feel that way? Well, I think that from 
you know, not just in the United States, but pretty much throughout the Western world going back for a very long time, there's always been a, a distinctive rural and urban culture. And, uh, you know, that the rural cultures tend to be more conservative, um, to be less committed to commerce and to sort of diversity and that sort of thing. And so there's nothing really unusual about the dynamic that's described in Kathy Kramer's book. It really, it's always been that way. And in uh, many ways, it is kind of in some ways inevitable in the sense that cities are almost definitionally places that people who began rural life decided to move to and to create a different kind of way of life. And so the people who are in cities are to a great extent self-selecting, and in a way so are people in rural areas who are deciding to stay there. The fact that um, there are very different cultures and attitudes is not new, it's not unusual. What is relatively new is that the those differences have become really weaponized politically. And in many states, the basically you have sort of ethno-nationalist entrepreneurs who stoke those resentments um, in order to you know get power. There are a few things that about how the cultural differences between rural and urban um, has changed in the United States in terms of how it plays out in politics that most people are, re- including sort of in, in, inferentially, even Kathy Kramer's book, which is that the political difference, the partisan difference between urban and rural has only recently exploded. The urban-rural gap in the 2016 and 2020 elections was about 75 points, just like just ridiculous. But in the middle of the 2010s, before it, it was in the 50s. And before that, it was under 30. And we see in the 21st century is an acceleration of that gap. And I think a lot of it has to do with the policies of the Clinton, Bush, and Obama administrations which really um, directed prosperity away from rural areas. Um, the other piece of it that is not where Wisconsin is an example of one of three types of things going on in the United States is a state where the balance of power between urban and rural, between Madison and Milwaukee on the one hand and the rest of the state on the other, is virtually like on a knife's edge. And when the political powers that balanced it really becomes weaponized and people sort of dig in, right? The other two sets of states, the ones that people think of as blue, in fact, Biden almost won rural blue America. It was only lost by about four points, which should like blow people's minds, right? Given what you think about rural voters. While on the other hand, in red states, he lost like by a near, you know, an overwhelming landslide. So those are the sort of three ways this is playing out right now in the United States. I, I want to follow up on all of those. So so interesting. And I mean, 
it almost sounds like some of it is just a sense of grief and loss, like modernity is coming, globalization is coming, change is coming. You can't hold on to your way of life anymore. And in a global communication environment, you can't really escape knowing that. Is that part of it, Amy? Well, uh, to follow up on on, on Mike's point about um the economy and you know what's happened to rural America. Before I lived in Maine, I lived in central New York, and that was an area where there was a lot of small scale manufacturing, some not even that small scale. And that just got, you know, a lot of that had already been shut down, moved first to the south, then to overseas textile, for example, um, leather works. Um, you know, when when I even when I first moved to that area, but by the time I left, even more of it had shut down. So, yeah, I mean, that, you know, then what are the jobs that are left for people in that area? And in Maine, you can just travel up to northern Penobscot County, go to Millinocket, East Millinocket, where the paper mills are all gone. And they're trying to revive those now, but not not those mills, those particular paper mills, but they're trying to revive those areas now, some with manufacturing, some with other sorts of activities, recreation, et cetera. But, you know, it's very hard. And, and what what happens is a kind of emptying out of population, too, where a lot of people decide, well, I can't earn a living here. So, you know, they move to they move to other parts of the state or they move to other states. Uh, and and that's very hard for those who are who haven't left. Uh, you know what what are they going to do then? That was just the March show. It was on uh, March seventeenth, I guess, St. Patrick's Day. Um, and we I, we just really enjoyed the conversation. I learned so much about um, you know about America, really, and about Maine as well, and how different voters look at things in different ways, and how the parties are. Um, taking advantage of or speaking to those voters. It was really a good conversation. You can find that archive and previous archives from the Democracy Forum at weru.org. Then just go to the Public Affairs Archives. So what are some of the other recent subjects that you've covered? And, and if you can, also give us a preview of what you're thinking about covering in 2023 for the rest of the year. Well, I talked a little bit about what we had done in February, and that was also a very excellent show. Um, the the January show was on um, comprehensive planning, a more local topic. Why should people bother with comprehensive planning? And we had um, experts from Maine talking about, the, you know, why that's an important thing for towns to engage in. That was also a great conversation. And then in April, we're going to do a show on citizen initiatives. We've had quite a few ballot questions qualify this year. The November ballot is going to have some stuff on it. And people are curious, like, how do these get on the ballot? How do you qualify for the ballot? Where is all this money coming from? Because we're seeing the ads already. Um, so we want to get some experts in. And um, we have uh, Professor Todd Donovan, who's from the University of Western Washington, as well as Shanna Bellows, will be coming on that show to talk about citizen initiatives generally, why states have this right, and um, how it's working in Maine in particular. That should be a good show, too. And maybe by then the Secretary of State will have figured out the wording for the <laughs> referendum question that's giving her so much trouble if she hasn't already. Um, I think that was about the um, the, the uh 
community or how are they putting it? Citizen takeover of the electric company, right? Yeah, how yeah, you put it, it is, that's a problem. <laughs> well, and I mean, there was a court ruling and now she's appealing. So we'll, we have plenty to talk about. Yeah, all right. Well, stay tuned for that. So uh, one thing I have noticed because I post your archives is every time you have an entire list of people who are involved behind the scenes and planning and putting together the programs that actually when we were doing live programs at the station, sometimes some of those folks would come and just, you know, observe the show. But it was clear that they're definitely actively participating. Uh, maybe you and, and uh, Judy, are you involved in that? Can you say a little bit about what goes on behind the scenes and how you pick those subjects and figure out who to invite and come up with the exhaustive uh, <laughs> reference list afterwards? I mean, there's some really good resources there. Well, I, I really am a sort of almost a fly on the wall, but I do attend. The, there is a weekly meeting of uh, Democracy Forum group and we usually start the meeting with some general league business but then it moves right into talking about the radio show and it's um it's a brainstorming session initially i would say about you know what are the topics what are we hearing about what what would people like to talk about and um i have teased Anne about this before. I mean, I enjoy it because it's almost like going to a graduate seminar in political science and and current events. And, you know, I just learn a lot by being part of the group. And uh, and I, I'll put a plug in right now that that's one of the things that I think the League really excels at. People are welcome to come and participate at any level at any time. So at any rate, there are people, though, among that group, you know, that, that if it's a uh, subject matter that they champion. They will uh, look for resources. They will look for titles. We'll say, what kind of questions do you have about this topic? And everybody uh, chimes in. And so it's a real iterative, iterative process. And um, and then Anne does super uh, culling of all this information and puts the show together. But I mean, the the team helps find the guests. They look for the experts, like who do we want to hear from? What's our point of view on this? You know, what actually is going to be the conversation that will fill up an hour, but not five hours? Um, so it, it's a good conversation, just getting ready, for, getting ready for the show and and assembling all the elements that put a show together. Are these all members of the League of Women Voters Down East chapter, or who are the folks that are part of your committee? They're all they're all members now, but you don't have to be a member to join. We welcome non-member volunteers too. We hope that you know if you come in and work with us for a while, you want to be a member, but it's not a prerequisite. All right. Well, we'll give out contact information at the end of the program. So, Democracy Forum airs on the third Fridays of every month at four to five o'clock, and like I said, it's up on the archives, all of the uh, previous editions, and you can subscribe to podcasts. But and it won an award. Uh, I think it was 2018, right? That's right. Yeah, right. Yep. The Association right. of Broadcasters Award. So, um, so the you know it's respected and 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 recognized as a as a great quality program. It's one of many programs here at WERU that really has people who are experts in their field hosting the programs, and that's part of why I'm trying to uh, showcase some of them this year on Main Currents. Uh, so so that listeners have a better sense of who is putting this programming together and what we have available on the schedule. This show in particular is really unique 
in that I think of it as almost like an interactive show, starting from that resources section of the archives that I mentioned, where there's always a suggested reading, you know, it's, it's sort of like a, don't take our word for it. Here's a bunch of different articles you can go read and find out where we uh, got our information from and link to other things. But also, like you mentioned, your group that gets together and plans out the program. And then sometimes the people that you're interviewing are tied in with a speaker series, but you have a speaker series that is sometimes isn't connected at all with the show. Can you talk a little bit about speaker series? And I know we have a, a clip from uh, one of the recent speakers that we'll play. Well, sometimes we... Uh, have such a good conversation on the radio that we, um, you know, want to take it to another level and particularly bring it to a local level. So we'll ask somebody from our local community from Hancock County to come in and talk about that subject to our members at, uh, at a quarterly meeting. And, um, you know, sometimes the quarterly meetings are not from the radio show. Sometimes they are. You're listening to Maine Currents on WERU-FM. I'm Amy Brown, and we are talking today about the League of Women Voters of Maine and the monthly democracy forum show that Downey's chapter produces here on WERU, which you can hear on the third Friday of every month at 4 o'clock right here in the same time slot. Ann Luther is the host of the Democracy Forum. Judy Lyles is a member of the production team and also the lead planner for in-person events. And Will Hayward is the advocacy program coordinator. And Judy, talk about the quarterly meetings, because this is really something you've been leaderful on. Well, I, I, it was in part in response to our members, many of whom through the pandemic were, you know, really missing meeting in person. And, but one of the benefits, if there is a benefit, you know, of what we've learned through the uh, pandemic is having a hybrid meeting and allowing people to zoom in. It, and so it's best of both worlds. So the quarterly meetings are uh, in person, but also available on zoom. And we have, um, you know, been able to have, you know, authors, people from our book groups uh, come to, to uh, speak. We did a follow-up on the Comprehensive Planning Democracy Forum and had uh, a session on that. We are, uh, we have done uh, some work on, uh, with um, uh, Earl Brecklin, who talk to us about uh, media and the challenges with print media these days and local uh, local uh, reporting so that we have uh, tried to meet the needs of the community and these meetings are open to the public so it's a way of saying you know here's a way of getting informed you know about uh, policy about issues that are important to the community. So it's been a very nice experience. And mo and also one of the recent people that we had was uh, Jamie McCowan, who talked to us about conspiracy theories, which was a very uh, well-received uh, program as well. That was a really interesting talk. I Let's play a clip of that real quick. And so we know that in reality, humans lack control over events often. It happens. Miscounted votes are the product of error based on people who are not provided enough funding, who are working 12-hour shifts, who are not being supported as much as they should be, not because they're part of an intentional conspiracy. 
The fact that vaccines don't prevent breakthrough infections is not because of some intentional planning, but instead, as much as we don't like to admit it, because our science hasn't fully mastered or controlled the world around us. And that idea of control over our world is one of the last items I want to mention. One of the things that's pointed out is that conspiracy theorizing is not simply a debate over alternative explanatory frames for events. I prefer this way of extracting the events. You prefer that way. But it's also about social capital and what comes with that. Because for the person positing the conspiracy theory, that conspiracy theory is often juxtaposed, often, though not always, sometimes conspiracy theories become mainstream that they become the actual official explanation. But more often than not, someone positing a conspiracy theory is positing it from the position of rejecting the official explanation, the dominant explanation. And so in doing so, they are reclaiming that they have superior knowledge or expertise over others. They're taking back control of expertise. You all are just sheeple. <laughs> I know because I've researched it. Well, I've heard that. <laughs> We've heard that a lot, right? You know, think for yourself. Are you just a sheep? Some have suggested that that rejection of expertise is what lies at the, at the, the core of conspiracy theories. And I actually disagree with that because if you look at it, what actually those people are often doing is just placing their faith in other expertise. I've done the research. No, you haven't. You're just placing your faith in Alex Jones versus CNN. And one of the fascinating things about that is if you look at Alex Jones as an example of this, because I've been tracking him for a long time, and you look at his setup, aesthetically, his setup on his stage looks like an official news program. He is taking on the trappings of official expertise. I will tell you the right narrative. CNN won't. It's not a rejection of expertise. It's often just an explicit endorsement of a different expertise. And that has social capital involved with it. And that brings us to the internet. <laughs> One of the things that I always get asked is, do you think social media and the internet and digital media are making uh, conspiracy theories a little bit more prominent? Is that why we're seeing what we're seeing? And that's really complicated. I would say the answer is yes and no. <laughs> Generally speaking, new revolutions in media and information technology, which often lower the entry point into people getting access to producers of media, create shockwaves through society, and those shockwaves often involve conspiracy theories that kind of emerge. That was also true for mass pamphleting and other kind of forms of communication. And it's also true, and this was the promise of the internet, remember? You remember the days when we all romantically thought it will flatten expertise, everyone will be an expert. And now you're like, I'm tired of everyone being an expert. Can we go back to expertise, right? Can we go back to trust? And I think that's all possible that what we are seeing is, is that everyone can be an expert and everyone can, you know, that it, it allows people. And there is absolutely no doubt that when we talk about viral networks of exchange, I received my first John Birch Society publication pamphlet at a state fair in South Carolina when I was a kid. I was walking through and of course, one of the Birch was like, hey kid, take this. Right. That was how you got exposed. And boy, was I like, I opened that up. I was like, oh my God, this is bonkers, awesome bonkers. Right. But now, with viral networks of dissemination across social media, the ability to reach out to people and disseminate information is much more prevalent. But I also think that one of the really interesting parts about this is that the other question is who is sharing that material? And one of the interesting things that I've noticed, um, an old friend of mine at MIT did a study a couple of years ago where they actually looked at people sharing, particularly, it wasn't just conspiracy theories, it also involved like sensational disinformation. And that's not the same thing necessarily. 
but they looked about media sharing and they, they predicted that they were going to see that there were bots intentionally sharing disinformation stuff. And that's not what they found. They actually found that it was human beings that were sharing more than the bots. They could identify the bots, but they was like, that's not the problem. The problem is you all are sharing. And what they found in particular was what they called, I, I don't remember the exact term of it, but it was basically a novel information quota, which is if a story was very much like all of the other stories you see in the media, people wouldn't share it. But if a story was gonzo, bonkers, nutty, off the wall, people would share it because it was different and it was interesting. And I have to wonder if when we talk about this question of conspiracy theories and why people are, I'm going to say something very provocative here, why people are all into them right now, maybe because they were bored with politics. <laughs> There's this idea of like, oh, the disenfranchised because they've been excluded. They don't feel like they see themselves. And I, I get that, but that, that's a tendency for us to rationalize exactly what. What if it's actually similar to that? What if it's simply that, oh, that's interesting. I'll share that because it's kind of nutty. And it's more interesting to think of a world in which there are these forces working behind the scenes than it is to recognize that, let's be honest, politics is often quite boring. All right. So uh, that is available at your website. I'll put a link if you want to hear the full version of that talk. That, again, was Jamie McCown. Can you say a little bit more about Jamie McCown as we wrap up that yeah. clip? Sure. Jamie is the Associate Dean for Ac Academic Affairs and the Ru James Russell Wiggins Chair of Government and Polity at the College of the Atlantic. He's got a long-standing sort of hobby interest and a scholarly interest in conspiracy theories in American politics and has been following this and teaching about it for a long, long time. It was interesting hearing how he talks about the course that he teaches. And so, yeah, that was a great listen. I wish we had time to play all of it, but that is available on your website. Like I said, I'll link to that. You mentioned also, uh, Judy, that there's book groups, plural book groups. Can you, uh, I don't know who all is involved. Maybe all three of you involved with those jump in and say a little bit about what the book groups are like. And we also will play a clip from one of the recent uh, book group speakers. Well, and I'll, I'll, I'll turn this over to Anne in a second, but I'll just say that the book group meets once a month on Wednesdays, and um, it uh, it has, you know, the people in the group choose the books going forward, and um, Anne, why don't you add to that? Well, I mean, it's the League of Women Voters, so the books are almost always political, you know, political science, sociology, history. Um, you know, it, sort of in that vein. And as Judy said, the members choose the book and, you know, whoever shows up this month chooses the book for next month type of thing. And um, the clip you're going to play was from our February book group mm -hmm. when we read the book United American, how FDR and Henry Stimson brought Democrats and Republicans together to win World War II. It just happened that we chose a book where the author was the cousin of one of our members. And so the author came and gave a book talk and it was really fascinating. And I think it's Peter, Stin Peter Schinkel. You're going to hear from him now. Right. And that uh, member of the league is also WERU volunteer star Gilmartin. Right. So you can hear right. a little bit of her introduction here as well. 
The League of Women Voters of Maine Down East book group meets monthly to discuss a chosen favorite. On February 22nd, 2023, author Peter Schinkel joined us to talk about how bipartisan cooperation won World War II. His book is called Uniting America, How FDR and Henry Stimson Brought Democrats and Republicans Together to win World War II. My name is Stargill Martin, and I am honored to introduce my first cousin, Peter Schinkel, who offered very graciously to uh, talk about his book. I had heard him at the Massachusetts Historical Society uh, give a talk about his book, and I was very intrigued, and, um, and so I was uh, very happy that he offered to do that. I'm going to read from the jacket, okay, because I'm not very good at extemporaneously speaking about Peter's work, and actually it's uh, his history is much uh, longer and than this jacket talks about, so... Peter uh, worked for nine, uh, 19 years as a reporter at various news organizations, including most recently the St. Louis Post-Dispatch. He covered the federal court system and also wrote investigative stories on subjects ranging from improper disposal of radioactive waste to contamination spread by lead mining company. He is the author of Ike's Mystery Man, The Secret Lives of Robert Cutler, who is also uh, a relative of ours. Okay, so Peter, thank you very much. Well, thank you very much, Anne and Star. It's a great honor to speak to the League of Women Voters, Down East Book Group. I live in Rhode Island, but I have lots of family connections to Maine, including my dear cousin, Star Gilmartin. But it's wonderful to be with you today. I, I love Maine and great to have this connection. I'm going to talk to you today about my book, which is about America's bipartisan leadership during World War II. But I'd like to begin with a few thoughts about political partisanship and the early days of our nation. When the founders wrote the Constitution in 1787, they envisioned a republic of individuals forming a government to secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. The concept of political parties was practically non-existent. And the founders gave no role and no rights to political parties per se. In fact, the first president, George Washington, disdained the two nascent parties of the day, the Federalists and the Democratic Republicans. In September 1796, Washington made his farewell address, announcing that he would not seek a third term in office. But he also issued a blistering condemnation of partisanship or what he called in the parlance of the day, the spirit of party. He warned that partisanship makes the country vulnerable to corruption and foreign influence. He also said it causes the spread of false information. Washington didn't, didn't argue there should be absolutely no partisanship. In fact, he said in moderate amounts, it could be beneficial, but he urged Americans to restrain partisanship. He warned, that partisanship could cause, quote, the chief of some prevailing faction to rise to power on the ruins of public liberty. He warned that partisanship agitates the community with ill-founded jealousies and false alarms, kindles the animosity of one part against another, and foments occasionally riot and insurrection. How prophetic indeed. 220 years after Washington issued this, his dire warning, Donald Trump unleashed his particular brand of partisanship on American politics. 
He fanned the flames of racial animosity by making repeated attacks against the nation's first black president and by saying Mexico was sending rapists to America. He praised dictators like Russia's Vladimir Putin. And Trump capped his time in office and beyond by spreading countless lies that the Democrats stole the 2020 election from him. And in an effort to seize power from his rightfully elected successor, he incited the violent insurrection at the nation's capital on January 6, 2021. Lately, he broke bread with avowed anti-Semites and suggested terminating the United States Constitution. All of this is fodder for those who say he is a fascist. If Trump had succeeded in his coup attempt in January 2021, he would have been precisely the person that George Washington warned about when he said that partisanship would lead to the chief of some prevailing faction rising to power on the ruins of public liberty. Now, my talk today is not a diatribe against Trump. It is a talk about the achievements of American bipartisanship during World War II. But I feel we should start by recognizing where we are in America today, an era of hyperpartisanship. Today, we're all too often expected to support and obey our party, right or wrong. I think of it as the footballization of politics. We never abandon our team, no matter how bad it gets. Well, I personally reject the footballization of politics. I think we need to get back to the Washingtonian ideal of an individual thinking for him or herself about who are the right leaders and what is the right thing to do for our society. Sometimes you just don't agree with your party and you choose your own path. I know there's a long tradition of that in Maine, by the way. My book, Uniting America, tells the story of how once upon a time our country benefited tremendously from having leaders who were far less partisan than those we have today. They were leaders who, who rose above partisanship to do what is right. Do you always have the authors show up at your book groups? Because my book group never had that. <laughs> we, we, we do sometimes try, particularly if it's a main book. A couple of years ago, we read um, Shirley Hager's book, um, get the title here, The Gatherings, and Shirley came on um, when we did that book. So we do sometimes invite the author and sometimes the author comes and this is like the same with the uh with the democracy forum the the radio show it doesn't hurt to invite famous people because sometimes famous people say yes you know sometimes nationally famous people will come on our show and sometimes they'll come to our book group too so yeah and sometimes we're highlighting local people who should be famous but aren't yet that too (laughs) that too so uh yeah so that uh, book group is that also open to anyone who wants to attend? How do they? How do people join that? That's also on our website. We've got a big calendar of events there. Um, there, the book groups have all been meeting on Zoom in the in the oh. COVID era. So you register for the Zoom link, and anybody's welcome to attend. Okay. We will put links up on the archives of today's program. And uh, if you're going to see Democracy Forum archives, obviously, there are lots of links there, too. Another thing I wanted to talk with you about, which doesn't come up, I think, really on the Democracy Forum much, if at all, is the email list that I don't know how I got on, but I really (laughs) appreciate it. It's called, uh, the heading is always under the dome, and it's about what 
legislation the League of Women Voters is kind of keeping an eye on and alerting people about. And I've, I've noticed that that is usually something that has to do with uh, voting access. You know, you're not saying, oh, vote this way on the, um, you know, bill about the East-West Highway or something like that, but you're, you're sticking to things about the process, I think. Um, Will, you're more involved in that, I understand. Uh, can you say a little bit about First off, how you select what bills, whether or not I'm right in that that seems to be the theme of what the league follows. And uh, yeah, start there and then we can maybe look into what you're watching right now. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so I think generally you've you've hit the nail on the head on mm-hmm. what we follow. Um, I would say that it, it can get even broader than voting specifically. We really are interested in all issues around, you know, democracy, public access to our government, transparency, um, all of those values. Um, and really what we decide to follow is um, it's driven by our volunteers and by by our team. Um, you know, there are literally thousands of bills that come out um, in the legislature each session. And so what we do is we look at the list, we see anything that looks like it could possibly have a title, you know, relating to democracy issues, to, you know, the public interest, really. Um, and then we look at it, we read it, we f- we figure out, you know, does this, does this sort of fall under the realm of what we're interested in keeping up with? And that can take a bunch of different levels. You know, that can be simply, we're watching this, we're going to see where it goes, we're not going to testify, we might not have a position on it, but we still want to watch it because it's of interest. And then that can escalate to, you know, this is something the League has a position on, and I'll talk more about a few of those bills that we're currently watching that we do have positions on, and so maybe we'll offer League testimony um, on a bill. And then kind of that third level I think of is, you know, this is a priority and we need to activate our membership base that is really passionate about this issue and that can be both for things that of course you know we support things that expand the franchise things that we really want to bring our members along to say yes please pass this and alternatively it can be things where we see it as restricting the franchise or otherwise harming our democracy and then we ask our members let the legislature know that we do not want you to pass this um so it really can be you know many different levels and then it's just distilling what makes it into the email from there we track things beyond the email as well but uh, we try to keep our members as informed as possible this is Maine Currents on WERU-FM we're talking about the League of Women Voters of Maine and the monthly democracy forum program the League of Women Voters Down East chapter produces here in WERU Ann Luther is the host of the democracy forum Judy Lyles is a member of the production team and the lead planner for in-person events, and Will Hayward is the advocacy program coordinator. I'm your host, Amy Brown. Back to our interview, which took place in late March. Is it a separate sort of lobbying branch of uh, the League of Women Voters that does that? So it's our statewide organization. That's correct. It's our it's a team called the Advocacy Committee, um, and it is it's sort of housed at our statewide level. Um, Anne actually is the chair of uh, that committee as well, um, and so we um, it's again you know it's a mix of staff and volunteers. It's open to anyone, like uh, like so many of the league's teams, um, and 
truly we couldn't do this work without the volunteers. Most of our testimony is drafted by volunteers. Um, staff often goes and delivers it, but um, we try to have as much volunteer direct participation in the legislative process on this as possible. Right. And, and you're, I mean, I probably should have said this right at the very beginning, but if, and the league is nonpartisan, right? right That's right. another, you know, you're choosing bills that are restricting access, but that's because they restrict access to everybody. You're not. That is correct. Okay. So what are some of the things that you're watching in this session or things that you were watching that have maybe been disposed of one way or another so far? Mm-hmm. So I, I will say it's been a pretty slow start to the session so far. So not much has been disposed of um, for better or worse, uh, but there is a lot that we're watching Um we have some priority bills that we are working to pass. Um, so a couple of those are, and I should say that these bills have not yet had public hearings. So if you get on our email list, um, you will hear when they're coming up and when you can take action. But a few of the priority bills for us are one is the national popular vote. Um, this is a proposal that folks are probably familiar with. It's been up a few times in the legislature before. Um, essentially, it's, you know, it's a proposal to ensure that whichever candidate gets the most votes for president across the entire country is the one that's elected president. So we don't have any more second place winners like in 2016 or 2000. Um, and so it's a state by state process to join that. So we're trying to get Maine to join and add four more electoral votes to that. Um, so that's a really high priority for us. A couple of other priorities. Um, there's the what's called the Protect Maine Elections um, proposal. So this was this is the bill to ban foreign government owned companies from spending in referendum elections. Um, And folks may recall there there was a signature effort to put this on the ballot and it did get enough signatures to qualify for the November ballot. But as we've discussed, there's a lot of things coming up on the November ballot. And we know this one is so overwhelmingly popular that we're actually asking the legislature to pass it outright in this session as the legislature always has the right to do with citizen-initiated legislation. So that's going to be another major one. And then finally, just um, a couple of others. Um, we wanted to we want to expand ongoing absentee voting. So that's where you sign up for an absentee ballot once and then you're automatically sent an absentee ballot in each election. After that, we want everyone to have access to that. And then one last thing that's a priority for us is, of course, tribal sovereignty. Um, we're not the lead organization on that. Of course, we look to the Wabanaki Alliance for that, but it is a major priority for our organization. Um, and I'd be happy to talk about a few of the bad bills in front of the legislature, too, if you would like. Yeah, definitely. Definitely want to hear. I, I just want to pause for a moment. Anne or Judy, do you want to comment on any of the uh, legislation, proposed legislation Will just mentioned before we move on to some of the negative things that you're what the league is watching? No, I mean, just to say, I mean, that Protect Maine Elections one is a perfect example of a bipartisan bill that has overwhelming support in the legislature. And we really hope it will pass. And to reinforce what Will said about this is a joint staff and volunteer effort. We have professional support and we have paid lobbyists, but our involvement in this is so much more meaningful because it's supported by people whose only interest is their commitment to democracy. And when volunteers show up and speak to that commitment, um, it carries a lot of weight in the legislature. 
So you're asking them to vote on it at the legislative level so it doesn't have to go on the referendum. But if it's very popular, wouldn't that draw more people to the polls? Why not leave it on the ballot? What's the what's the thinking behind that? Well, it's expensive to run. We're going to talk about this oh, in our okay. democracy so forum in, in, in the democracy forum next month. But it, it's expensive to run a ballot question campaign. You know, so they haven't done it, the ballot. They haven't done the signature collecting yet. You're they saying? have done the signature collecting. Okay. But if it goes on the ballot, then you have to advocate for a yes okay. vote on you vote yes on question whatever, and so you have to campaign for it, right? I see. And okay. I mean, in in citizen initiative land, people's instinct is always to check no. So if yes is the right answer, you have to overcome people's instinct, which is always to check no. So even if you have a very popular ballot question, you have to run a campaign of sorts. And um, anytime you run a campaign, you always have a chance, right, that you could lose. And and this one, this particular question was overwhelmingly supported in the legislature, but it was unfortunately vetoed by the governor. And we were just this month short of having enough votes to overcome the gubernatorial veto. So we're really hoping we can put it across legislatively this time. Well, I would like to go do a psychosocial study on why it is that people tend to just vote no on things that their fellow Mainers put so much time and energy and money into getting on the ballot, but we'll save that for another day. Uh, right. Well, what are the, some of the things that you're watching that are concerning that are coming up with the legislature this session? So probably the no- most notable one is one that we have seen many times before the legislature, and that is a bill to require photo ID for voting. Um, and we know from studies that, uh, you know, this has a disproportionate impact on the people with sort of least access to the system. Um, it can really, the people it who are least likely to vote as a result of photo ID legislation passing are, um, you know, are, you know, historically disenfranchised groups. Um, so we very strongly oppose that, you know, the bill this time was specifically written to exclude college IDs. So it even felt a bit more, you know, maliciously targeted than some of the past versions we've seen. Um, and, you know, we oppose it in all forms, but it seemed especially harmful this time. So that was one that we testified against. Um, that's still waiting for to be worked in committee. Um, I'm very optimistic that it's not going to get a favorable report out of committee, but it's still something we're concerned about. We know there's a signature collection effort there to put it directly on the ballot as well. So we just think it's really important to stand up and um, explain why this is bad when we have the opportunity to. Um, there's two more bills that actually, as of recording, will have their public hearing soon. Um, they may have already been heard when this airs, but um, but there's the two two bills coming up very soon. One would um, undo the ranked choice voting law that Mainers passed twice in 2016 and 2018. Um, so the there's a bill proposing to get rid of ranked choice voting. And of course, we oppose that. The league has long supported ranked choice voting. The More importantly, the voters have long supported ranked choice voting. And so we want the legislature to honor that. And then finally, there's a bill to ban absentee ballot drop boxes. Um, and we really, really do not want that to pass 
because we know that absentee ballot drop boxes are extremely popular. They're a great option for voters, particularly in a time when uh, mail service is a little less reliable than it used to be. Um, and so it's just a really great additional option for voters to cast absentee ballots. And so much of the language around banning absentee ballot drop boxes gets into all of these conspiracy theories that we know aren't true about our elections. We know our elections are safe and secure and drop boxes are an important part of that. Well, they also help when the federal postmaster removes a bunch of uh, mailboxes right before an election during a pandemic too. So go figure. So this RCV bill, does that seem to have a lot of traction that would eliminate ranked choice voting? You know, I, I think we are very optimistic that it is not going to pass. Um, we're, we're always, you know, we always want to make sure that the legislature is honoring the will of the voters. Um, so we, we will always stand up and remind them that it's the voters who passed this um, so they don't get tempted. But I'm very hopeful it's not going to pass this year. Do most of the bills that the league monitors end up going through one of the committees? You know, in Maine, we are so lucky because every single bill gets a public hearing. Is that what you were asking? Maybe well, you yeah, were asking just wondering which about, committee. Yeah, because at the public hearings, I know I've listened in on a lot of the public hearings and the people who regularly go in and lobby. It seems like some of the committees really take them seriously because they, going in as citizen legislators, don't necessarily know, have a lot of background in that area before they're assigned to the committee. So do you feel like the committee or committees that you testify at most frequently, you know, put a lot of weight in what the league has to say? Mm-hmm. I, w- I would certainly say so. You know, there sometimes we bring forward perspectives on a bill that no one else who's testifying has considered. And then they will ask us, you know, when we come back to work on this bill in what's called a work session, can you bring this information so that uh, we can consider it? Um, they'll ask us, what is the league's position on, you know, this alternate proposal we might do? They they really do value our opinion. And it's really um, it's really heartening when when we get that those sorts of questions. So for that under the dome email blast, where do people can people just sign up on the website for that? Is that pretty clear how to do that okay so i think there's a let me see what the name of the link is i think there's a sign up or take action get involved it's under get involved and um there's a subscribe tab there we run quite a few different mailing lists you know you can get subscribed to the list to get information about activities in your local area which if you want to come to some of our local meetings or be in our book group or stuff you know sign up for that but if you want the advocacy under the dome you know there's a special checkbox to get that just that and not all the other stuff is that lwvme.org that's right okay so we have just a couple of minutes left uh just looking forward i know the next uh Democracy Forum after this airs is going to be on Friday, April 21st at 4 p.m. Uh, I don't, did you say at the beginning what, who's going to be on this one, what it's going to be about? Uh, uh, Professor Todd Donovan uh, and Secretary of State Shannon Bellows on That's citizen initiatives. And I just, if we have a moment, I just want to put in a plug. It's not election season right now, but a lot of league activities gear up at election season. Last year, I think we did nine candidate forums. We distributed a couple of thousand voter guides. Um, you know, we supported our online vote 411 um, online voter guide. So there's a lot that goes 
goes on with the league at election season. We're in a little quiet period now and we're still pretty busy, but in the fall, there's a, there are a lot more ways for volunteers to get engaged in helping people be informed voters. Right. That was Ann Luther. Judy Lyles, do you have any last thoughts? I just wanted to uh, reiterate what Ann said there, that, you know, there are so many ways to be involved in the league. And many of them, you know, if people are afraid that they're going to overcommit, there are very time-limited um, activities that you can uh, be involved in and feel that you're really contributing to making the the democracy work in our in our community so um and if you're interested in in more in-depth things there's tons <laughs> you know you can really run the gamut so um you know, by all means don't be scared <laughs> you know just join uh well any final thoughts I guess I would just say as a final thought, uh, right now is a really exciting time in the legislature. And a really great thing in Maine is how accessible our legislature is. So I would really encourage anyone to reach out if you want to get involved on any bill you're interested in. You know, we do a lot of work to help prepare people to testify, contact their legislator, whether or not it's on our priority issues, because we do think that just that engagement in our democracy in itself is so important. So we're here to help if you're interested in anything going on at the state level. Mm. You know, I did it in around town, a short feature I do about this a week or two ago. It's actually post-pandemic easier to testify because you can still do it via Zoom. You can do uh, oral testimony via Zoom if you register at least a half hour in advance with the committee. So if you're helping people with how to prepare testimony, they don't even have to go to Augusta to deliver it. So... So thank you all for being with me today. And uh, Democracy Forum, again, check it out. It's on the third Friday of every month from 4 to 5 o'clock. And Ann Luther, who's been with us today, is the host. But uh, all of these other folks and more are behind the scenes helping put it together. You can see the whole list on our archives. And I appreciate your time. Thanks, Amy. It was good to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. My guests today were from the League of Women Voters of Maine. Ann Luther and Judy Lyles are from the Down East chapter. Ann is the host of the Democracy Forum on the third Friday of every month here on WERU in this very same time slot. And Judy is one of the members of the team that helps plan the shows along with other events. Will Hayward is the Advocacy Program Coordinator for the State Chapter. More information about their work and how you can get involved if you're interested is at lwvme.org. Be sure to also check out the Democracy Forum archives at weru.org. I spoke with them in late March, and last week the bill that would repeal ranked choice voting, which is opposed by the League, the repeal of it, that is, had a work session and the committee issued a divided report. A work session was scheduled last Friday for LD 1055, an act to prohibit the use of ballot drop boxes that was sponsored by Senator Eric Brakey. A public hearing on that bill was held on March 22nd and drew a large number of comments from the public, which you can view on the legislature's website if you're interested the League of Women Voters had also testified in support of LD812, an act to assist clerks in facilitating elections and to improve access to in-person absentee voting for working people by increasing time for absentee ballot processing and in-person voting. 
though they had concerns that it might be killed in committee, and it turns out they were right about that. The Veterans and Legal Affairs Committee voted ought not to pass on that one. You can find information on all of the bills we discussed today at www.legislature.maine.gov. And you've been listening to Maine Currents, independent local news, views, and culture on the first Tuesday of every month here on WERU at 4 p.m. I'm Amy Brown. You can reach me at news at WERU.org. And keep it tuned here to your community radio station, WERU-FM 89.9 Blue Hill, streaming online at WERU.org, and as always on our smartphone app. Thanks for listening.